All right. Well, hello, everybody. I am here tonight with Dan Baltic. Dan Baltic is an author who has recently started a podcast called New Right. Uh, that's W-R-I-T-E, along with the writer Matt Pegas, dedicated to platforming dissident literature. Uh, you can find their podcast on Patreon, Twitter, and YouTube. I've included all of their links below. So Dan is joining me today to discuss uh, to discuss New Right, their their mission. I'm really curious to get some of their or origin story as well as just discuss the state of of publishing and uh, the state of dissident literature. So Dan, um, welcome and and thanks for being here. Well, thank you, LT, for that uh, very generous introduction. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting us on. It's, it's great to be able to, um, you know, speak more about our, our project here. And so, uh, yeah, Matt Pegas and I started a pod called New Right. And our goal is to provide a platform for dissident literature. And so, like, immediate, I mean, obviously, your listeners are familiar with uh, the dissident right. But what is dissident literature? That's the immediate kind of Sure, literature. that would be my, my first question on my, uh, <laughs> my Google Doc here. Well, what are we really talking about? Yeah. So what we're talking about here is, and, and this is what led us to start the pod, is Matt and I, um, we both wrote novels. And we, well, we, we met on Justin, let me start from the beginning. We met on Justin Murphy's forum, Indie Thinkers. We found out that we were both novelists. Um, and Matt, that's how I should mention, that's how we all got connected. Oh, yes, yeah, exactly. That's how we, we all met on Justin Murphy's forum. And um, so Matt and I started talking. Matt's novel has been published. Matt's novel, Dragon Day, has been published by Terror House Press. Mine, Nutcranker, is still uh, is still looking for a publisher, but in both cases, uh, we found uh, that it's it's very difficult to get fiction published that is not um, uh, that is not politically correct. I mean, that's it's not even the right word for it anymore. Mm. That that is not kind of um, doesn't tow the the uh, woke party line when it comes to the various uh, taboos that you, you, you're not allowed to, to really talk about. And so, you know, maybe for other demographics, that wouldn't be as much of an issue. If maybe we were both white women, that wouldn't be as much of a concern. Mm. But as straight white men writing fiction, 
there there are just certain things that are uh, taboo and, and cannot really be discussed honestly in the traditional published literary publishing uh, world. And so Matt and I, you know, found found that you know we couldn't really find traditional publishers. And I, I still am looking for a publisher for Nutcranker. And um, we found also that uh, in looking, trying to find out, like, are there books, novels being published outside of the, um, the traditional publishing environment, outside of, uh, I mean, essentially, I, I think the term of art cathedral the cathedral is something mm -hmm. that your listeners will be familiar with sure so, yeah so is there fiction being published outside of the cathedral and the answer is yes and so matt and i realized this and we you know we located and you know we, we both found we liked some of these writers who are self-published or published through terror house or, or uh, expat press and we um, we realize that there, though there is a kind of nascent publishing industry outside of the cathedral, there isn't the infrastructure to discuss it. So Matt, when he wrote his uh, his novel Dragon Day, he wanted to find pods to go on to talk about it, and there were none. <laughs> there, yeah, he, yeah. He, he went on the pod of Terror House, which is great. <laughs> Terror House is great, but it's the publisher. <laughs> so yeah. he, uh, I mean, he did go on pods, but not explicitly literary or you know culture-oriented pods. And so we we realized there's a real niche for this. There's a real need for this, and um, that's what started New Right. And we we both do um, you know lean somewhat to the right to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh, would be, you know, I, I imagine considered reactionary by some, uh, but New Right is really kind of a, a wink and a nod to, like, it, it's not, we're not a, um, uh, a doctrinaire, neo-reaction mm -hmm. publisher or something. What we are simply trying to do is provide a, a platform for people who cannot be published by the cathedral for whatever reason. Right. And so some of those people will be, you know, right wing, some will be left wing. But what, what we, I think what we all share in common is that our writing is in, in some respects honest in a way that is no longer possible in the traditional publishing environment. And um, that is, those are the voices that we're trying to platform. And um, those are the ideas we're trying to discuss. Awesome. Awesome. And is that, I am semi-familiar with Terror House and I probably should have looked into them a bit more. I did listen to the majority of the podcast you did with the, um, uh, the individual from Terror House. But is that, is that sort of their mission statement as well as Terror House trying to platform kind of <laughs> dissident, you know, outside writers outside of the Overton window? Are they, I, I think Absolutely. of them sort of like a, like as Imperium Press for fiction writers. I don't know if that's a fair comparison or... I, I would say more more in line with what I described as the mission stand. I, I don't want to put words in Terror House Press's mouth or Matt Forney, who is the publisher, or in, in his mouth. 
but um, they, yeah, they are, you know, like explicitly, I think in their mission statement, they want, they're looking to publish outsider fiction. Sure. And I, I don't think though, you know, they certainly have uh, platformed and published a number of uh, dissident right writers. They're not even explicitly political. Right. They, right. You know, Terror House is looking to publish fiction that can't be published in the traditional publishing environment. And it sounds like we're the podcast arm of Terror House. I swear that's not actually. Yeah, no, it's just there that how many players are in the game at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't want, I mean, truly, I wouldn't want um, a, <laughs> I wouldn't want a, a publishing house interested in fiction to have, have some sort of politic, political, explicitly political motive. Um, yeah. Dan, do you think you could maybe mention, I mean, I know, uh, I, you, you, I think you're up to your your fourth or fifth episode at this point. You've covered Mike Ma um, as one writer, but could you maybe just mention a few contemporary writers who our, our listeners might be aware of, whose whose fiction you feel would broadly be categorized as as falling under the the new right umbrella? Um, Absolutely, and uh, yeah, so Mike Ma would obviously be one, but uh, I think kind of and it would not be that controversial to say that the like prototypical new right fiction writer is delicious tacos yeah and he's and he's he, he under terror terror houses label I think. he's self-published uh-huh. but he's uh, he's a friend of terror house matt lawrence who we did our third episode of the podcast with he uh draws the the covers for, right that's uh, why i thought he was published by terror house i remember that point you made in the podcast yeah yeah and so tacos is huge i mean he he sells a ton of books he outsells traditional literary fiction published by the actual publishing industry and his, his writing is quite good so like he he is the kind of um, you know progenitor of this this movement that mm. we're trying to um, platform, and so yeah, so tacos, Mike Ma, um, uh, Zero HP Lovecraft, yeah, who, uh, we uh, we actually have not uh, between uh, Matt and myself, we have not actually read yet, so I'm not going to speak too much about him. But uh, we, we understand his writing is very good. And of course, he's outside of the mainstream. So I think know. he would be comfortable with um, <laughs> being categorized under the new right. And I know he's, I think yeah. he's, he's friends with delicious tacos. He certainly um, hangs out in that milieu. I know he, um, he, he blurbed Matt's book. Um, yeah. And he's, uh, he's very active Twitter perso- pers- personality. So I, I, I'll speak on behalf of Zero HP that I think he'd be fine to, uh, be considered new right and i'm sure at some point you guys will get him onto your um onto your cast yeah. yeah so that i mean that's kind of where i i my mind was headed and where i was situating you guys i'm curious dan if i mean if you or matt if you guys did any if you sh- if you shopped around in in sort of the standard publishing houses or you were looking for an agent um I'm just wondering if you if you have any horror stories of the rejections or or I guess any well, any responses that you got. I mean, were people if you were trying to go a more sort of standard traditional route with your books, were people very forthcoming with you just by saying this is all forbidden 
kind of tone and subject matter nowadays? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I made the rounds with my, um, uh, my query letter and, um, yeah, agents almost uniformly would, you know, just say like, we are not going to publish this. And, uh, even small presses as well would say they're not. And so I, I should say that Nutcranker, my novel, is kind of a, a modern day uh, confederacy of dunces mm-hmm. with the, the main character being kind of a uh, like a, a very uh, overeducated incel um, uh, type uh, sort of, uh, you know, not not that I do not think there are uh, very uh, valuable insights from Neo Reaction, but like he's he's very steeped in uh, you know wanting to collapse democracy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'd buy a copy. It sounds great to uh-huh. already, but yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of yeah. So it's like a satire of uh, these things. So yeah, that that obviously doesn't have a lot of traction in the current publishing environment. And it, an interesting story here is I uh, I reached out to a uh, a former professor of mine of creative writing, and uh, he um, he has a connection to an MFA program, and he he told me uh, candidly that his um, white straight white male MFA students who write dark fiction can't get published and can't get agents. <laughs> And wow. that's like, this is a, a real, you know, top MFA program. I, I have no doubt that the students there, the, the, the straight white males writing dark, humorous st- stories, they're probably quite talented. The stories are quite good. Five years ago, 10 years ago, they'd be, you know, you'd be, you'd hear of them. You'd be reading about yeah, them. Yeah. But uh, not, no dice today. That's crazy. I mean, the one that the the one kind of straight white male um, dark com- comedy writer that still seems to be kind of in the in the limelight a little bit that immediately comes to mind for me is Sam Lipsight. Like Sam yeah. Lipsight has not been, you know, canceled. Oh, no. And his stuff yeah. is um, I think you could put that right on the shelf next to Delicious Tacos at some point. It's I think it's Absolutely. fantastically, you know, politically incorrect much of the time. But I guess he maybe he kind of came on the scene a little earlier. That's what I was going to say that some people are grandfathered in, right? So like Sam Lipsight, I love his fiction, and he's he's great. Um, He would not get published today, I don't think. He he is published today, but only because he's already Sam Lipsight. A young Sam Lipsight would not find an an agent today, Hmm. I don't think. Um, another great example of that would be uh, Welbeck. Welbeck, um, you know, famously is like, you know, a, has written about uh, social atomization, sexual atomization. Yes. He had a novel called Submission, which uh, imagined what would happen if uh, France became a, a sort of uh, caliphate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Obviously, yeah. that's pretty politically incorrect. Uh, and, but, um, he continues to, he's very popular, sells a lot of books, a lot of novels, but, um, you know, crucially, well, he's French, number one, I, I think France oddly has a more liberal, uh, cultural environment than we do. We liberal in the sense that, that you're allowed to say stuff, right. not in the sense that you, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
And, um, but a, a Welbeck in America today, like a, a, an American Welbeck would be like delicious tacos. And delicious tacos, you know, sure as shit isn't getting an agent. Yeah. At least right now. So, yeah. yeah. It's um, interesting. I was trying to think, I mean, I, I was, before we, we uh, scheduled this, I was trying to think to myself, Dan, like who would be, who would never get an agent today? Just sort of like thinking about writers from history and like Welbeck was on my list that came immediately to my, to mind. And, you know, my book, my big Welbeck book was elementary, elementary particles came out when I was in college and I read that. And that was like, maybe like an early red pilling hat wasn't really a thing, yet. <laughs> but that movie that was one of the most important books of my, my, my life. It just like, it kind of blew me away, but yeah, I don't think any, there's no way, shape or form Welbeck's getting published. And even people, I was thinking like another writer that I loved when I was in my twenties and when I was in college was Philip Roth. I don't think there's any, Absolutely. any way, shape or form that Roth would ever get published or um, Henry Miller. Like that's another one that came immediately to mind. It's funny because a lot of those, but I mean, Roth Miller, certainly, I think Welbeck is always kind of an oddball. I don't know what people, I don't think people know what to, to do with him, but you know, people like Roth and Miller are still like, you know, library of America auteurs that are sort of maybe not Miller so much, but definitely Roth was nationally celebrated and Absolutely. I think that like men and women both both read his books, despite the fact that um, it's an obviously just I mean, such a male voice and a male perspective in all of his um, his literature. But yeah, I don't think he'd get an agent today. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you have like. You, I don't you know if Hemingway a... would. Quite honestly. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I'm sure he wouldn't. I I think there's a real division between pre-civil rights movement and post-civil rights movement authors in terms of one, like pre-civil rights movement authors will, you know, almost uniformly not have what is generally considered today to be the correct positions on race and gender and, and all of those things. And uh, so, yeah, you, you know, you, you could not possibly be someone with like, even the opinions of Fitzgerald, which were, you know, the popular opinions of the time. You could not, you know, have those opinions and expect to get published anywhere. You, yeah. you might, you know, depending on your country, wind up being, uh, you know, prosecuted or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a, you know, an expert on European law. But um, in, uh, so you have, pre-civil rights movement uh, literature. And then you have people like Roth, people who wrote in, you know, essentially uh, contemporary literature, uh, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. And so people like Roth, Brett Easton Ellis, Jay McInerney, Paul Oster, Norman Mailer. Uh, I'll even include John Kennedy tool, even though he wrote uh, at an earlier period, he was only published in like the uh, late seventies or early eighties. Mm -hmm. And these writers, I would characterize as people generally who um, have the right, uh, the right opinions, according to the cathedral, the, the right opinions on questions of race and sex and gender mm -hmm. and what have you. Uh, largely the right opinion, like maybe not 100%, but 
but they don't know how to express it in the right way. So yeah, you're you know if you're Philip Roth, you're not gonna get uh, you know a publishing contract today if you're you know just starting out because the way you talk about women, or or even maybe the way you talk about other races, is going to um, you know strike people as uh being impolite mm -hmm. uh, not not necessarily being like you know uh completely you know uh verboten but it'll be like you you're not being sensitive enough to the you know lived realities yeah but, yeah yeah um, uh so but i mean so what what fiction you know now can be published today it's it's the type of fiction that is sensitive to those realities and so what does that mean to be sensitive to, you know, all of these things? It means you really, you know, it, it depends on who you are, but if you are um, a, a straight white male, it means there's not a lot you can really write about, honestly, unless you write in a very sensitive manner that is, you know, frankly, not very honest and uh, does not, you know, really uh, inspire engagement from people, from readers. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's what's happening today. Has your opinion. has your um, your MFA uh, professor, uh, did he was he candid in saying, you know, what publishers are looking for or if they sort of have a, a description of a, a prototypical novel that they that they are after? I'm also I'm, I'm curious if the term I forget if I heard this from you and, and Matt or not, but just the term like workshop fiction mean anything to you? Do you feel like there's a, I don't know if you're a veteran of a lot of writers workshops or, or MFA programs, but I'm curious if there is sort of a, a prototypical standard kind of prose that's coming out of MFA programs right now, or if it's, if it's still somewhat of a mixed, a mixed bag. I mean, I think what you see in MFA programs today is, uh, again, that dynamic where there's, you know, various things that you, you can no longer really talk about or say. And as a result, the stories are going, well, I mean, number one, literary MFA programs are mostly designed to produce literary fiction. And so it's driven by its audience, partly who reads literary fiction? It's NPR listeners. Mm -hmm. And NPR listeners, they don't want to hear anything that's not woke. So while there are other um, genres in publishing where you could get away with more, in literary fiction, you right now, because you know the uh, cultural, uh, cultural elites, the liberal cultural elite are, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, under the spell of, want a better word wokeism whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it uh yeah the the fiction that they read will um necessarily be um uh have to dovetail with those political uh ideals so the workshop fiction the new literary fiction um you you see in a, a situation where if um th there's more leeway more latitude if you are a in some way a marginalized voice because you could talk about your experience honestly uh, in a way that doesn't offend people because you can't offend people if you are a minority 
of some form or sort talking about your experience. Mm -hmm. So like a, a good example of this, and this isn't literary fiction at all. This isn't fiction, but it struck me as instructive. Um, my friend was at a comedy show recently and uh, there were two comedians um, on, on stage, not at the same time, of course. And uh, there was a, uh, a white comedian and an African-American comedian. And the white comedian was just much less funny. I uh, couldn't, and, but the reason why, well, my friend, you know, he, he's not even very based. He's a more or less a normie, but he put it together in his, in his head. He said, oh yeah, the white guy can't talk about anything edgy, but the yeah. black guys can go in the edgy place and that's where the humor is sure so it's, just, it's just i mean that's really what's like going that. on right now with dave Chappelle, his latest exactly. uh special i think they're trying to get it yanked off of netflix but he can he's sort of un, an uncancelable figure like maybe the only uncancelable sort of achilles uh you know <laughs> yeah. immortal man that's been dipped into the river sticks and is can't be you know can't be slain but we'll yeah, see. no, I mean, if, if a, a white guy did that special, he'd be in prison right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. potentially in reality, but, uh, you know, he'd be in, certainly in social prison. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, it's been so long, honestly, that I've since I've read any kind of like contemporary fiction that isn't like Welbeck's latest or something that I have to like, you know, send a check in the mail for a, a copy of a book. <laughs> to read um I, I have no idea what it's like i just you know i'm curious if it if if a lot of kind of contemporary mfa fiction or the the npr you know literati fiction as as you put it if it's as sort of canned as a lot of tv that i see nowadays like i'm like is is every couple that's a, in the story like a bi like mixed race couple is it that this yeah. you know this stuff that's just always reads as so kind of canned and mandated um, I, I think there is a netflixization that, that is going across cultures and, and mediums and yeah i i think that literature literary fiction is kind of uh netflixized right mm -hmm. now so yeah you you have like the you know, all of them are stories that promote narratives that are, you know, also, I mean, and I, I was talking about this with Matt the other day, my, my co-host, Matt Vegas. Um, the, the reason why these, you know, woke uh, literary fiction and woke, woke art in general is, is bad is not just because it um, is, you know, there are things it can't say. It's, it's because of the stuff it does say. And the stuff it does say is promoting a, a political ideology that is false. So like you, if, you, if you're promulgating an idea that is like just demonstrably like, you know, it is not true. It is not how people, you know, act in reality. It's going to look stupid. It's going to sound, you know, you know, really weird. Yes. So like, as compared to, uh, there, there are examples of, you know, certainly of, um, you know, various like, uh, uh, political agitprop from the eighties and seventies that, that actually holds up pretty well. 
And I, I would say, like, I really enjoyed, uh, for instance, Boys in the Hood. And mm. that, uh, you know, that certainly is like, I don't think, you, you know, the director would even be offended if you called it hatchet prop. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it, you know, but it didn't have this woke narrative of like, um, you know, uh, the, the only the major threat to black men are the cops who are just right. running around gunning them down. Yeah. Like that's not, it's just, it's not true that that is reality. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a, a movie that depicts that, it's just going to seem ridiculous because like, it, it's just not, you know, the you know reality of, yes. uh, yeah, I'm yeah. certainly not, an African-American man and can't speak to that. But uh, I, I have a feeling that, you know, if there is, you know, street violence, if that's a concern, I would imagine the cops are like, you know, very like this minor concern on the, you know, the level of like, you yeah. know, all the various ways you could be taken out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I'm curious if there's, so Dan, I don't want to go on too much of a, a tangent here, but I did, I did have, I did have some notes. Um, I'm interested in asking you this question, but it'll be maybe like a, a long, a long winded question. I think another, well, I guess for starters, another figure that I am not a fiction writer, but I think it, his name just looms in front of me and it comes up as somebody who would again, be very comfortable in this space is bronze age pervert. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, he wrote, I mean, he, he writes kind of Nietzschean. I don't know even, I, I guess it's, I mean, it's nonfiction. I don't know how I would categorize it. He, he writes like, you know, so sprake there, Zarathustra for the, yeah. <laughs> the postmodern age. Um, but I guess one thing I noticed and you know, I've, I've read, I've bronze age pervert and, um, zero HP. I, I, I read most of Mike Ma before, um, I knew we were going to talk and I've, I've noticed that a lot of the, this is what's interesting to me. So a lot of these writers and delicious tacos would count as, as this as well. I, I'm surprised to realize that a lot of these, you, I mean, you did an episode on this as well. You, you, I think you called it the, the, you titled the episode, the manosphere, manosphere to literature pipeline. That's and right. all of these guys that I just mentioned, they seem like they're sort of, I've observed through like their Twitter, not, not through their, their fiction or their prose directly, but like via Twitter that they're all very familiar with uh, pickup artistry and like the, what was, you know, at least at one point called the PUA com community. And so, you know, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but um, you know, I, I, I'm, well, I guess for start, I'm just, I'm very interested to realize, and I, this is a recent revelation to me, this, you know, I, I read, Bronze Age pervert last year, and that's when I realized that there's a lot of like sophisticating, sophisticated writing that has emerged out of the, the manosphere, so to speak. And Absolutely. you know, in the so in the in the mid to late 2000s, that's when I sort of encountered like the PUA community. That was like I guess what I, I maybe what what that was like first wave pickup artistry. <laughs> I don't know if there's a term for yeah. that. Was like the era of. Neil Strauss had come out with the game, which was his like yeah. his memoir of having met mystery who uh, we should talk about that book maybe a little bit at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, I, you know, I, at the time, like I had just kind of ended my first major relationship and I found it, I read the game and I found it 
fascinating. I'm not, I'm not claiming it's, you know, high, high literature or anything like that, but, you know, I, I read that I, I read the mystery method and, um, at the time I found it all very like mesmerizing. And I, I, you know, I'll admit that I, I tried putting a lot of it into practice in my dating life at the time. Like I'm not, I am, I'm not claiming that in any way, shape or form, I was ever a, a, a PUA or anything like that, but I, it certainly helped reverse my polarity when it came to, to women and my, my dating life, since I was, I was anything but a, a natural when it came to like courting women or, you know, anything when it came to the opposite sex, but it sort of seems like I maybe, I maybe missed the bandwagon. Um, and perhaps this is because at the time I, you know, I wasn't much of an internet person as of yet, but it seems like either after that, I'm not sure what the timeline is, but there was like a lot of really interesting, I don't know if it's second wave game or when the pickup community became the manosphere precisely. Um, yeah. Or it might've just been a fact that I missed this because, you know, in, in 2011, I finally, you know, met my wife, the woman that I would, I would eventually marry, but it seems like part of that community has just become more and more interesting um, and having and, and talking about broader issues than just how to, you know, how to flirt Absolutely. with women after I stopped paying attention to it. And I, I was struck in particular by something that you and Matt had said in one of your earlier podcast episodes. I wrote it down. As a matter of fact, you, you guys were, it was that Manosphere episode. And one of you had said that uh, before the Trump era, sex was more interesting than politics. And after, <laughs> after Trump, politics became more interesting than sex like this yeah. strange polarity and i don't know when that's when when the the kind of the writing and the theorizing around you know male and female dynamics became kind of the atom got cracked and it became more more expansive um but you know around the trump around the trump era around 2016 is when i sort of it's when I first pit, like encountered mold bug and I kind of began to move to the right slowly, like right as, right as Trump was ele elected is when I basically got, you know, quote unquote, red, red pilled. I know I got yeah. you know, red. Me, me too, more or less. Yeah. Red pill is, is a little probably confusing as a term because it was both, you know, used in the, uh, the manosphere pickup artist community to be when you, you know, you learn these, um, <laughs> these tricks about, yeah. Uh, human, the human social order and red pilling is, you know, when you read Moldbug and you become aware about some, you know, human political realities as well. But um, before that, I was just like a, a default lib, um, but I honestly did not spend a lot of time thinking about politics. Um, and, and I spent these years when I was reading Moldbug also, you know, getting married and, and starting a family. But, and, yeah. and from Moldbug as my sort of like, this was my how I spent my time instead of reading pickup books, I was reading, you know, old, <laughs> like, uh, old, uh, unqualified reservation blog posts. And, you know, that led to a lot of the kind of, you already had your wife. That was probably time better spent. Yes, reading. absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, uh, uh, he led me down the, a lot of, uh, other writers that, that are, more in the sort of trad calf sphere. You know, a lot of the people that Moldbug talks about are old school sort of pre-Protestant Reformation political thinkers. And yeah. I, I wound up, you know, 
following a lot of track like within the dissident rights space this channel uh, often although i'm i'm myself am secular like i kind of hang out with the trad cath set um and i'll get to my point very soon i promise i'm sorry preliminary information but um that's sort of the side that i wound up up wound up on as i sort of became to identify with the with the dissident right um you know the books i read the personalities that i was paying attention to online were just trad caths for the most part or at least christians um and i think in part that just had to, that just kind of occurred naturally another aspect of that is that they just sort of have more of a blueprint and to speak to more of more to my life as a as a you know as a married man and a father um, yeah. But it wasn't until I encountered Bronze Age Pervert and Zero HP Lovecraft that I, I like, you know, as I, you know, I got done with all my old trad cath writings and I picked up Bath because he was what everybody was talking about at the time. And I was, I was honestly, I was like, holy shit, these are the same guys that were t- kind of like within that early 2000s pickup world. They've both kind of alluded to it, um, and you know, I, yeah, I've, I've heard both of them sort of mention game directly, um, and it's obviously that they they've spent time kind of reading those books and all the books that kind of came out after you know Mystery Method and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I found that it fascinating that on the on the one side, I, I just I I thought that that was all stuff that I'd left behind, and this was sort of my new identity. This was like my twenties was about learning game. about what was it about game and my 30s is going to be about dissident right-wing politics and then i sort of showed up at the meeting and was like oh my god you're the same crew of guys <laughs> or at least like half the room were other people in the you know in the pickup forums um, yeah. and i found that fascinating and it j- honestly just blindsided me because i did not think that that would be that's not what i i anticipated i thought that i had sort of adopted I'd gotten into dissident rights stuff because I'd matured past, um, you know, needing to uh, <laughs> needing to, to meet women and learn these these tricks of the trade. Um, this will all be thoroughly off brand for me, by the way, because most of my listeners are traditional Catholics, and they'll be this is the little view. This is my, my confession, but um, I guess what's interesting to me is that I, I would you would think that these sort of worlds are polar opposites. Um, that you know you have traditional catholic and but but i'd say but for one thing i mean both both sides are almost just universally men whether you're yeah. sort of the anosphere bronze age pervert camp of the dissident right or whether in your you're in more of a sort of traditionalist catholic sphere of the dissident right um and it's just interesting that they sort of find themselves aligned politically at least they sort of they have the same enemies they read the same books um, they read one another. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, I have another a number of questions <laughs> that I want to pitch to you, but one of them is just sort of, what do you make of the fact, I don't know if you've observed this yourself, Dan, that sort of like traditional Christians and or tra- trad cats and manosphere guys kind of find themselves in the same trench. Um, and, you know, I've been trying to scratch my head and ask myself questions like, you know, are they really fun? fundamentally that different or is there something core to either personality that seems like i don't know both really seem to favor like rules-based systems (laughs) 
<laughs> in one form or another. Um, I think both would be really kind of skeptical about egalitarian uh, relationships, you know, between between the sexes. Um, and it also seems to me just, you know, one other point is that the borders between these groups seem somewhat porous. I, I think there was like this one famous pickup artist, I think his name was Roosh, who was a big PUA personality who eventually kind of converted to Christianity. Um, He's an interesting story. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that is, that, is that anything that you've kind of picked up on that, that we all seem to be in the, in a strange, it, may, it just makes for strange bedfellows, I guess. Yeah. So the, I, I think the question is, uh, or, or rather the, the, you know, issue is um, why is it that you have a bunch of pickup artist guys in the distant right? And, you know, how, how did they get there? Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I'd even, I, I, I I'd even put it a bit, a bit more broadly. I think what, um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to, I feel, I feel really cheap describing Bronze Age Pervert or, or ZHP or any of these guys as, as pickup guys, but they've just sort of well, no, no, yeah. alluded I mean, to, they've alluded to the fact that they're at least, they're pretty fluent in the, the, the lingo with that. I think what it speaks to is it's, it's this dichotomy and this dialectic on the dissident right that I've, I, I have, I've sort of referred to, um, before as it's it's this it's it's the it's the clearest manifestation of a very fundamental dialectic and division going on on the dissonant right which is uh nietzsche versus christ there's sort of this civil war absolutely that has been going on for a long time and i think that the you know the manosphere bronze age bronze age pervert is probably the biggest personality in that sect are the Nietzscheans. They're not very interested in any, in reinstating any kind of like ancient re- regime, unless it's like the Roman empire, or like the Greeks. <laughs> and then you have Christ, the people that are, are in, you know, come at it from a more Catholic perspective. And, and yeah, so I, I, I guess that's how I would, I would frame it. It's the, the Nietzsche versus Christ dilemma on the right yeah. at the moment. Well, I would say that they are both united, and this is why and how you see the progression of uh, writers from the manosphere into the dissident right. Because as the culture changed, well, let's let's back up. Why why were they in the manosphere in the or in the you know yeah manosphere before the manosphere the you know red pill dating game whatever? They were there because they took the red pill. And what, what was the red pill? The red pill is that there are natural biological and psych- and thus psychological differences between men and women. And those uh, differences, you know, can be exploited to get you laid. And so that <laughs> that is what, you know, they were writing about and doing. And then, you know, and, and you know, keep in mind, they're doing this and, you know, the uh, kind of... Uh, fallout of the the you know end of the sexual revolution and where we're all living in the kind of an age of sexual and personal atomization and so the the attitude of the men in the manosphere was kind of uh yeah it sucks but uh you know 
get your shit together and uh, make the best of it. And, and you can, you can reap the world, not reward, <laughs> reap the rewards of, uh, you know, this, uh, this, you know, dysfunctional, uh, you know, atmosphere. And I think what gradually happened was as the culture became crazier and crazier in terms of its, um, you know, impositions on the, you know, the ability of men to live, you know, reasonably good lives and also these guys getting older and you know wanting families and stuff like that as well they um they took that red pill understanding of um of sex and brought it into politics because politics you know is, uh, even in like 2008 2009 it wasn't that you know it wasn't a matter of uh am I going to lose my job for making a joke? It, was, it wasn't quite there yet. Or like, or better yet, am I going to lose my job for complimenting my, my female coworker? And so what, what really began to happen was the culture shifted in a way that, uh, you know, really makes life pretty untenable for, uh, you know, uh, normal male existence as we've understood it throughout, throughout history. So I think that is kind of what brought the, um, the Manosphere writers into politics and they, you know, found uh, the, you know, the tradcasts there already because, you know, they, they both were, are, are reacting. They're both, you know, in some ways reactionaries to the same, you know, thing that's happening, which is, uh, you know, you have the progressive agenda, which is, you know, radically anti-family, anti-man, anti, you know, freedom of thought. So yeah, you, you find them kind of together. And I, I think that you, you probably do find a number of Manosphere uh, writers who probably, and like, I think here an example would, uh, Jack Murphy would be a good example, who probably when he, uh, he was a, uh, you know, more Manosphere guy, probably had a real like libertarian, like, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I think this is his kind of trajectory. He had a more libertarian, let live, and you know, uh, live and let live. And, he, but then as he became more political, he realized that um, a culture has to have values. And uh, if you, you want to be able to live in a decent society, you need to actually have not an, an absence of values where anyone could do whatever they want and, you know, but, but a, a values that are promulgated by the actual, you know, uh, if not the state, by, you know, a, a mores and consensus. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that men who were writing in the Madosphere, they grew up and they, uh, they, you know, as they were growing up, they got hit by this, you know, uh, comet that is the, you know, the, the great awakening, uh, God, I, I hate that term, but you know, I don't know what you're going to call it. And, um, yeah, so that led them to the dissident right. And I think they and the, the Tradcaths are united by uh, a sense of um, uh, that, you know, in order for communities to, to thrive, you need, um, 
you need trust. You need, uh, you know, a certain, you know, acknowledgement of, you know, the difference between men and women. You need, um, you need to have, uh, you know, certain, you know, social mores and about, uh, sex, about criminal justice, <laughs> about uh, a number of other uh, things. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the Manosphere writers got there by means of the red pill and people like the trad cats had, you know, had always, uh, you know, they were, they were born with the red pill. Mm. So mm. that's an interesting, that, that would be my, my yeah. understanding. Of. Yeah. I mean, and, and in hindsight, I should, I mean, I, I, I first felt gobsmacked when I was like, Oh, there are PUAs in the dissident right. And then, uh, you know, a few pulses later, I was like, I, I, I feel like I felt like an idiot because I I realized, well, of course, because I mean, most of Moldbug's political observations are just this is the same kind of intuitions and observations about, you know, how power really works on a societal scale, as opposed to on a on a relational scale, you know, between between men and women. I mean, there's just so much obvious like valence and symmetry to those things in a lot of ways absolutely you know, like you know what power really is you know what <laughs> what entropy is you know what's um that you know you could you could do do kind of a side-by-side -side comparison um i i think another that was a really interesting and satisfying explanation dan i think another something that i honestly struggle with as i just kind of continually sort of ping pong between both sides of the dissident right community is i think one of the bit that while there's obviously a lot to to you know agree with one another on and kind of lock arms with and i think often sometimes it is it maybe it is just fundamentally an, an age gap um I, <laughs> you know i in some ways i think they have very kind of contrary and perhaps irre irre irreconcilable notions of of manhood in some way i think that um again i mentioned earlier part of the reason that i spend most of my time with the the trad cats is just they sort of they have there's more scaffolding there once you have a family and you know i'll i'll admit dan that i i wanted to get through mike ma's harassment architecture before we we talked and i, I put it down halfway to halfway through um you know and no offense to mike ma i thought it was a, a decent book but i i sort of i put it down for this for the same reasons as to as why i don't hang out with divorced men <laughs> which is like a lot yeah. of the book involves you know it's sort of like a, I, I, I mean his style kind of reminded me a little bit of like chuck polinick or, or brett easton ellis but it's it's not i wouldn't reduce it to just sort of like sexual memoirs but there was a bit of like uh, there was a, it reminded me a bit of Tucker Max and kind of the fratire um, scene that yeah. came out uh, in the 2000s as well. And um, and he wrote about all of that honestly and well, but I just I just don't like kind of putting myself in the position of kind of spectating or glorifying that lifestyle just for the sake of my my own my own well-being. Um, and yeah. there is this kind of like on the one hand, I think, you know, there's this kind of mutual respect and admiration for one another between the traditionalists and the um the the Nietzscheans as I'll call them and I'm, <laughs> when I say that I just really mean sort of like I guess 
if I want to define the manosphere or the the Nietzsche <laughs> Nietzschean camp, it's sort of the the secular pro-sex dissidents as opposed to the you know theological more conservative. Yeah, yeah. No, I I know what you mean. Um, but you know it, it's. It 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 it, it I, I feel like the the trad side of the equation either does not address just kind of doesn't address it at all or does a, a relatively bad job of addressing questions of sex and issues of sex or kind of the deteriorating um, sexual relations between men and women and I think that a lot of the 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 Nietzscheans kind of return the favor when it comes to questions of family and, and family formation. And I mean, one thing I, I, I plan on getting um, zero HP on the, the, the program at some point, because I, I've heard him, I'm, I, I know he values his privacy and I, I hope, and I believe I'm not violating it because I've heard him make mention of it on other podcasts. I, I, I believe that he is a parent and he might be sort of the missing link <laughs> between, uh -huh. between this, but um, you know, I, I, I find it difficult to, um, you know, take a lot of the kind of, um, I guess the lessons learned both in the like old manosphere community and, and the kind of, the kind of messaging that still gets delivered in a lot of that into, you know, my life no, no, stands now. I mean, it, you I know, know you try feeling, try feeling alpha when you have two child seats in the back of your car. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, no. I mean, I try, like, try nagging your your wife when she's breastfeeding and making sure that it comes off as kind of like cute and flirtatious. And it's, it's just a, <laughs> it's just a very different world. And um, yeah, you know, part of the part of the reason why I'm asking you about this, Dan, is I'm curious if. The, I, so all of the, the writers that we've talked about, I, I think everything I've kind of seen coming out of Terror House, you know, Delicious Tacos, um, Bronze Age Pervert, Mike Ma, they're all very, I would, I don't know if you would disagree, but I would categorize them all as the, the Nietzschean manosphere side of the dissident right. And so I'm curious if you've seen any writers on the dissident right that are attempting fiction come out of a more traditional perspective or has has most of the kind of creative artistic output output which wouldn't wouldn't surprise me because um i think that the energy on that side of things is a lot more kind of you know dionysian and dynamic and and you yeah. know filled with eros but do you have you noticed any dissident right-wingers that have a bit more of a kind of traditionalist perspective on things? So I have, and this comes with the caveat that it is obviously an emerging, uh, you know, field and, you know, space. So one of the problems is there's a, a paucity of, you know, writing out there, a paucity of fiction out there. And so, I think as it evolves, you will see more genres. You will see more, more in the way of, um, you know, different, and even like, even within writing about sex, like harassment architecture is Mike Ma's debut novel. It's very like supercharged. He's a young guy. He's like, I think he's 26. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. But like if, for instance, if you were to read some of Delicious Tacos' stuff, 
I mean, a lot of it is is very, you know, he's he's a man in his 40s. And yes, he does write about uh, sex, but he also does write about love and loss. And like, it's it more, he, he does, you know, cover, um, you know, the, the whole side of Eros, not only the, uh, the copulating side of it. And so like, yeah, there's tacos, there's, um, there's ma, and, uh, but beyond that, beyond, you know, people who focus on male sexuality, um, you do have, um, for instance, there's a, uh, science fiction writer. I was going to ask Orf- if there's, yeah, like what other genres have you been noticing, uh, kind of dissident stuff popping up in, if at all? So yeah, like zero HP, as, as you know, is a horrorist. I, we, you know, do plan to read his fiction. We have not yet. Tell so you, I, he do, I mean, he does write about sex, but not in any way, shape or form. Like, <laughs> delicious uh, tacos. it's more uh, like a nightmare, you know, Lars von Trier film vision. Uh, of uh, yeah. So there's uh, Travis Corcoran who does sort of uh, my understanding is, and I have not read his stuff either. Uh, a uh, kind of right wing science fiction. So maybe something like Robert Heinlein. And um, interestingly, and this is one on, on one of uh, Bronze Age Pervert's uh, latest podcasts, Caribbean Rhythms, he interviewed a novelist who I had never heard of, who published a novel in 2012 uh, called, I, I believe, Breakfast for the Dirt Cult. And uh, he, uh, he, he's a veteran who wrote about his experience in Afghanistan. And I mean, some of it, I think, involves uh, sex, but, you know, that's more like not in Afghanistan. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a memoir of, uh, you know, his time at war. And it's, you know, a memoir that could not really be, uh, you know, probably, I, I assume, could not be published by the traditional publishing industry today. And I, I need to dig into uh, that one as well. But um, yeah, there's, uh, for instance, um, also um, there's decent cultural criticism coming out of this distant space as well. So there's someone uh, who we're going to have on the pod pretty soon on New Right called Bad Billy Pratt. And he yeah. writes... Yeah, yeah, he writes about, um, yes, about sex and dating, but also um, meditations on pop culture and kind of uh, like there, he has an essay about how, uh, I mean, it's similar actually to uh, your your video, um, uh, The War on the Third Way and, uh, and Boys, and uh, similar to uh, how culture stopped at Nirvana. And, you know, that, you know, after the 90s, the culture kind of disappeared. And so he, he talks about stuff like that. And, yeah, I mean, it's, I Is think... the name of his book, Welcome to Hell? Or Yes, yes. Welcome to Hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got one of those um, delicious taco style uh, art. That's right, by Matt Lawrence, yeah. who was also on the pod. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think this is all to say that it's... Uh, it's a burgeoning field, a burgeoning, you know, and 
people are, you know, just kind of honing their craft and, you know, just getting out there. And, you know, we're hoping to help them do that. And it's like, it is very difficult to um, write in a vacuum. Like I, I more or less wrote this novel in a vacuum because I couldn't really workshop it with anyone because like I tried at a workshop and like a, a, a woman there said, like, well, you obviously write very well, but why would you write this? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can empathize with that. I mean, I did I did a lot of fiction writing and, and fiction workshops when I was in in college at a very liberal institution and my, you know, my God, my, uh, I just prayed at the altar of Philip Roth. So I was, I was coming into my fiction workshops. It was me and nine, you know, 90% female classes and me trying to do my best Philip Roth impressions. So not a lot of people walked to the cafeteria with me after those, uh, the, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that that's that's interesting, um, and I think it's. I mean, I think it's fair to say I mostly observe kind of more cultural criticism coming out of a lot of the more traditionalist or religious members of the dissident right. I have not seen a lot of people kind of try their hands at at fiction, um, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, like I said, I think I would not be surprised if I I, I heard from Zero HP Lovecraft that he began writing horror when he got when he started his family not that family life is horrific but just that there's sort of this pivot that happens in life where you've got to take that kind of you know not to get too yeah. freudian but that that libidinal energy and put it into a new a new yeah. craft put the energy. You know? or like for that matter like hartiste i know he kind of seems like he went off the rails and just some sort of un unsavory flavors of nationalism. When I was <laughs> that, that would be one way to put it. When I was hearing you guys talk about it, I was like, I wonder if he just got married. <laughs> he like had so much <laughs> pent up libido that he was like, I have to do something with this. I think I'm going to become like a, a radical extremist. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be really hard for him to find a wife with uh, his current yeah. <laughs> political uh, agenda. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. I guess another, speaking of sort of different writers and different genres, another question I had for you, Dan, was, um, do you, so you meant, and I'm, I'm pl pleased to hear that there's, you know, there's people working in memoir, there's people working in, in science fiction, but I'm curious if you found it to be the case that some, some genres are in it more right-wing than than others or are there any genres that are kind of fundamentally left-wing versus right-wing i know it's kind of like a pretty tired cliche and it's one i've i've talked about at length on my channel that that horror is in some ways this just sort of fundamentally fundamentally right-wing genre but do you think that there there are kind of spaces that are going to be more resistant to to dissident fiction or do you think that you can kind Absolutely. of see these voices crop up anywhere yeah, well, I mean, the, the issue is essentially that literary fiction is, it's, well, I'll back up a little bit. Fiction, any fiction, any product is defined by its audience. So who, who are you pitching it to, basically? And so literary fiction is being pitched to the, the NPR set. Mm -hmm. The, you know, people who are firmly within the cathedral, they maybe even help run the cathedral. So they are, you know, absolutely not going to be open to dissident lit. And this is why you see 
distant lit is mostly literary fiction. It's mostly, and that's one of the reasons why it's men writing about sex because it's, it's literary fiction. It's, you know, yeah. writing, men writing about their, their lives, their, you know, it's not like it doesn't, you know, it's not a detective story. It's not a thriller. But that brings me to the next point for other genres. Um, you know, the other genres have audiences that skew more conservative. So um, thrillers, airport fiction, stuff like, you know, Tom Clancy novels, James Patterson novels, they will be a little more conservative. They, they won't be as woke or, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a big consumer of them, but my understanding is that uh, they, you know, they are not as, uh, they, you know, they, they don't talk about pronouns too much yeah. when they're storming, you know, the embassy or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. So that and uh, as well as um, sci-fi, honestly enough, uh, I, I think in, in the notes you, you mentioned that sci-fi um, seems very progressive. I, I don't, I'm not a huge connoisseur of sci-fi, but I think there's certainly more wiggle room in any of the genres than there is in literary fiction. So like sci-fi, like um, the, the guy I mentioned, who's a, a dissident, you know, arguably a, a dissident right sci-fi writer, Travis Corcoran, he's won awards. I think he's won like Hugo awards. And like the, the you know, because there are people who will read him in the, the community of mm. science fiction readers. Whereas the literary fiction community is not, there's, there's no one there. There's no, none of these wine moms want to read about like, you know, uh, incel uh, horror stories uh, or satires. They're, they're just like, I got to call the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah we're not going to get much, uh, you know, penetration there. But, um, yeah. I think you're right. You know. I mean, the hard, but like, you made me think of like hard boiled detective, like real gritty noir, like James Elroy, LA Confidential. That kind of stuff is all like, none of that's PC. I don't, I mean, that might be kind of a fading genre at this point. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's a, a fair amount of like gritty crime drama um, that is, I think well, it has think, a bit of an excuse. It's so genre. It's it's such a thick genre, and the the detective, the persona is like has to be such a an asshole that you can kind of get away yeah. with it being kind of more of a dissident um, dissident art form a lot of the time. Yeah. And crucially, you know, it's it's about the plot typically. So you don't really have to like. Does this guy have opinions that are you know un unwoke? You know, this detective like he probably doesn't even get into that very much. It's about like who killed who, how are you going to catch him, mm -hmm. and like as long as you don't you know in the novel talk about the perps in a way that is uh, inflammatory, you uh, you know you should be fine. And, you know, it's, and the same goes for like, you know, thrillers, you know, as, as long as you don't talk about, uh, use any slurs when describing, you know, Middle Eastern terrorists, you, you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but whereas like, it's, it's much trickier to, uh, you're writing a novel about a, a guy who, um, you know, is going to break up with his girlfriend. 
I mean, that's it's a lot harder to be like, you know, very PC when you honestly describe the thinking process and like maybe yeah. the thinking process is, uh, you know, I, I realized that I could just do better and um, I, I don't want to sell myself short. And, you know, that I think that is, you know, maybe something that is not okay anymore. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about, um, I'm just briefly, I'm curious, anything on your radar in like the fantasy genre? You know, not really, but like, I mean, I think there's certainly an argument that like, um, you know, Tolkien is, you know, oh, yeah. Of, I mean, he's uh, the ultimate trad. Um, I put yeah, yeah. Like a full video on, on him in the future. He, but yeah, I, I think it, but in some ways it's because Lewis. Yes. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I mean like for recent, I'm not like, I thought Game of Thrones was pretty good. Uh, I, I don't think, like, I mean, I read it in, like, 2015. I wasn't really attuned, at, like, many to the culture wars at that point. Mm -hmm. But I recalled it having, like, a, a pretty right-wing take, I think, on, like, power and masculinity. Yeah, yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. I think I, it, George R. R. Martin is a really strange case because I think you're right. In, in some ways, it's it's very gritty and dark and, and Machiavellian. In, in some ways, I think Martin wrote it as kind of a critique of Tolkien. Like he obviously loves and admires. Tolkien, oh yeah. But but it's sort of this, you know, he can't really accept the the degree of sort of romanticism that you have in in Tolkien. So instead of you know, Aragorn being the Christ-like return of the the king, he just sort sort of shows you the like you know, the grit like you know the 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 terrible reality of you know medieval <laughs> medieval politics that the tolkien tends to kind of romanticize but and in, in, in other respects i think it's i think part of why he can't really end the series or he can't, he'll never manage to finish the series is because he is at the end of the day like a liberal and there's no real resolution that he can kind of bring to the story yeah. without capitulating to the kind of um I guess religious tropes and metaphors that he sought out to critique in Tolkien. You know, like he he kind of set yeah. up John uh, John Snow and Daenerys as the you know the promised you know return of the king or return of the queen, but to fulfill yeah. that that to fulfill that promise would be returning into kind of like a symbolic order and a kind yeah. of pagan or christian worldview that would undermine his like liberal critique of yeah and so that's why i my my money's on we're never seeing the end of the series <laughs> yeah well i mean also he's like pretty close to the end so like yeah. I, I don't know if we're getting more books out of this this yeah. you know like methuselah dude yeah he might go uh, the full full wheel of time um in that in that regard i mean the other great i guess sort of right-wing banner within like the sci-fi fantasy world is is dune i mean dune is sort of oh yeah i'm watching the show right now i uh yeah i embarrassingly have not read the book but i'm i like it i like the first half hour that i've seen yeah yeah no it's i mean that it's um i'll send you it's some right wing i understand yeah it is the i mean especially amongst like I guess the dissident trad cats anybody who was slightly nerdy in high school there's probably about a hundred why well it is the neo-reactionary bible for like nerdy um <laughs> <laughs> dissidents 
at this point. Um, and Dan, we don't have to go on too too much longer, but I do have a, a I guess one uh, one question I had is, um, have you found that I know you mentioned that like delicious tacos gets um, a lot of fan mail from from women, but have you found it to be the case that um, that women are any kind of sizable minority in in being interested in in these kind of books? Um, I I think it's kind of an interesting and new phenomenon that. Um, women and men seem drawn to entirely different literature from one another nowadays again i mean i mentioned earlier i think you know when phil in the 70s or the 60s if philip roth came out with a book like you read it regardless of whether you're a man or a woman like yeah. men read joan didion or there, there was not this i guess just divide in just this clear divide in what men and women are are reading um at least there wasn't in like the this preceding decades i mean to an extent that's always true especially if it comes to things like pulp you know women prefer you know bodice rippers and romance novels and men are typically the ones reading the you know true crime or whatever but um have you have you seen any kind of interest from women in these uh, these not enough. not enough not enough i must say uh it's you know it's interesting we joke matt and i that uh, we're, we're doing this to get laid and it's um you know it's hilarious because like you know it's very hard to even like get anyone to read your work and uh you know far from like being something that would like ever like help you uh you know get attention from women um the you know vast majority of women if they you know even knew that you were publishing like dissident literature would probably not want to consider you as a, uh, mm. a partner. So it's like, it's like actively, and we, we discussed this, Matt and myself, that it's, it's so strange to be embroiled in this endeavor that is like, you know, will actively repel women <laughs> because the, you know, the, the drive of course in life is to, you know, find, uh, you know, a, a mate and uh you know and amass uh, money and resources for your potential children or your actual children and what we are doing here with this pod potentially compromises our jobs and uh also compromises uh you know uh i mean certainly i, I don't have you know this is like a a third date conversation you know if that you know, maybe <laughs> yeah when is that I, when, yeah, do you, when do you politely yeah. slide it into the like you know getting to know you uh like courtship yeah it's true so uh yeah so i'm mean, this is to say that women are yeah there there are very few who are reading these, these types of novels hmm. and i think the reason is because um you know the space outside of the cathedral has been, you know, a kind of stigmatized as um, a space where um, people who are hold ideas that are evil exist. And, you know, women very instinctively, uh, you know, they, they don't want to be in the place where, you know, people don't are able to get jobs and, you know, aren't, uh, you know, are stigmatized. Like women more so than men are drawn to security. 
and to, you know, what will bring, they're drunk to high status men who will, you know, give them a proper life of, of some sort. And, you know, but, but for men, men are sometimes drawn to different things. And like Matt and I were talking, like there's no real, you know, evolutionary utility maxing reason why we're doing this. And we realize the only reason is we, we both care about writing and we care about the truth and that, that was it. And it's, and it's fun. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's, we, we do it because it's fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting too. I mean, uh, the dissident right in general, I, I guess one problem that I think it has is, as I described, there's this sort of Nietzsche versus Christ tension. Um, paradigm that's just just always kind of the yin the yin and yang of the 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 <laughs> the cultural space but i think there is kind of like a i mean and i don't mean to segue too far away from from literature dan so stop me if i go too far too far afield but i think there is kind of this a woman problem on the right in that there's just um yeah, I mean, I, I think what you, everything you said about your your podcast and just writing about this, um, you know, the 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 type of fiction that you're you're trying to produce and that you're interested in, can be said about just kind of the the dissident right wing political space as well. I I, I I'm I'm going to try and get Alex Kashuda on the po podcast or oh, yeah. on my it show soon be because yeah, and I and I feel bad because I don't want to like. <laughs> I don't want to pigeonhole her and put her in this position, but as sort yeah. of like the the queen of dissident right Twitter and and also the like only chick in the space, like how like how did you find us? Why are you sticking around? Like how do we get more um, you know more women? How does it become like? I guess. Sorry if I'm rambling, but like no no, I'm just curious how this is all going to. If I looked at 10, 20 years down the road, there's this this fissure between you know what men and women are reading. And granted, you know at the at the moment, men are obvious. Men in the dissident rights space are certainly a, a minority, and women certainly have their pick of the litter when it comes to you know like blue pilled men with you know decent status. But I do think that you know in general, the dissident right tends to attract interesting um provocative men that women are women find find interesting for you know for many reasons you know smart successful interesting men certainly like men that are willing to take risks yeah. but if if we're if we're in a cultural space which already is one in which women cannot admit to any level of attraction to men that are attracted to this type of fiction or these type of ideas. Um, what, I mean, what does that look like 10, 20 years from now? Like what's the next generation gonna be like? Are we just gonna have this, this chasm between men and women? And I think eventually there's gonna be some point where, you know, I don't know, men on the, on the DR look a little bit more high status than the, the you know, Blue oh, I, I think guys. so. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, this is a, a movement that is in its infancy. 
And like right now, yeah, the, you know, the pioneers are the ones who, you know, typically get dysentery and and die. And like, you know, hopefully that's not us. Hopefully we don't, you know, get dysentery, but uh, you know, then, you know, you you claim a homestead, you develop it and yeah, and then people come when it's like actually, you know, a place that people want to be and it has like working, you know, facilities and you're saying we need toilets before we we need plumbing before we can get (laughs) into the the compound basically women women like a clean bathroom i mean i i mean i i dan i mean i mentioned i was not a natural when it came to learning any of like (laughs) i was also like a total rube when it came well like when i started first started reading mold bug i was just like honey listen to this like read this let me read you let me let me tell you about how the american revolution was uh, really this like, you know, secret psyop. And, you know, it took me at this point, I, and, you know, my, my, my wife, whom I love dearly and has like 20 IQ points on me. And I think it's just something about what, like we've been talking about the, the differences between men and women. Like I have attempted an explanation of the cathedral 50 times. And I've just, and I've, and I've given up. And it's not because my woman, my, 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 my wife is not a brilliant woman. But it's just yeah. it doesn't interest her. It's not, it's not provocative. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not well, something she finds titillating. So there's, you know, I, I, I've I sort think... of given up on inviting women to the political conversation. At the same time as I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with the the sausage party we have going on here, both on the trad side and on the like, you know, the Nietzsche side of things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that the current political environment. It, uh, you know, is uniquely um, harmful to men. So, yeah, we're going to notice it more. We're going to, you know, like the same way women notice, you know, certain cultural trends that, you know, impact them negatively. Like, yeah, generally the the cultural trends. uh, I can't sit and watch television with my my wife anymore. It's like terrible because I just... All I yeah, see no. is like I'll, 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 a, a TV, a commercial will come on and I'll just be like, uh, and I wind up seeming like, you know, I'm, you know, Hunter Thompson on drugs or something, but I'll just leap out of my chair and be like, do you see the subliminal messaging in this ad? Like, you know, they're selling yeah. adult underpants. Why does the couple have to be like mixed race in their eighties? <laughs> like that means the, that couple had to marry one another in 1950. Like, what are the yeah. odds of a mixed race couple happening in America in 1950? And she'll be like, why do you care? And I'll be, and I, I, you know, that, but that's how it is with, you know, 95% of, of every show on any channel now is I like, she's just absolutely accepted the fact I mean, that we can't watch shows together. I mean, the, you know, stuff like Netflix, just like whatever they produce is guaranteed to be something that not only is like, you know, doesn't say anything that's taboo, but proactively promotes, you know, woke narratives that are nonsense and crazy. So like you, you have stuff like, um, I I remember there was some, I I don't even know what um, show this is for, but it was a trailer about a group of um, uh, African-American outlaws who uh, take over, commandeer a train, uh, which is being run by Union soldiers, 
and they uh, execute all of the Union soldiers. And it's like, it's just very like, you know, stylized violence. And it just is very clear, you know, racial, racialized violence as well. And it's, you see this and like, you know, there are a number of reactions. One is like, that's a little gross. I, I don't want to see something that's so, but like, then the deeper reaction is to me, why is it there? Why, why are they doing it? And if it's something that's historically accurate, okay, sure, that makes sense. Like if it's a scene of like Indians scalping and killing, you know, settlers, yeah, okay, even if it's super graphic, it, it happened, it's true. Mm-hmm. This is something that never fucking happened. <laughs> this is like, it's, it's, and the only reason it's there is because they want to show, you know, uh, yeah. Union, white Union soldiers being killed. Um, and it's, you know, it's, and so for that reason, it's, it's difficult to watch these shows because it's the active promulgation of narratives that are not rooted in reality and are instead designed to propagate ideology. Yeah, yeah. It's always the, I, I, and I, again, these are the, the conversations that I've decided to, you know, no longer get in with into with my wife because they just don't seem to bother her and I wind up being on the defensive and you know my faith <laughs> what one that I've noticed that is just so kind of uncanny and it's it's a pricklier one but every literally every single advertisement for anything any product on any show is mixed race couples mixed race families and my my my, my wife is always like you know, but why do you care? And I wind up, I turn into a Seinfeld episode. I'm like, of course, there's nothing wrong with it. Of course, there's nothing wrong with it. But why? Isn't yeah. it weird that like 99% of every couple, uh, like in the, you know, other life hypothetical Sims world that we're, you know, that, that we are uh, viewing is yeah. so completely remiss with reality. And, you know, yeah. and there's, I mean, and it, it, it also just created like, there's this inauthenticity to it too. That's, the, that's it. The stories like, would be fine if I'm trying to think of if like, they were real, yeah. like if they, if, you know, they were authentic, but so like, uh, like, yeah, Indians, Native Americans scalping uh, settlers, that it's difficult to watch. It's, you know, whatever, but it's, it's actually real. It's actually, you know, it, it happened. And, uh, you know, similarly, like, if you see, you know, a story about an interracial couple, that's like, actually just like a story that is like, yeah. you know, uh, or, but when you see it's there as propaganda, it's like, you know, we know why you're doing this. We know why, you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. And it always and, just, it, it jumps you out of the narrative. It completely just, just you know, if you were in any kind of flow state of viewing something, it's just, it's always so jarring to me. And then it's, it's doubly jarring that other people that I, I'm watching with don't bother. Like the, the most recent example for this, for me was even more kind of weird and it's getting even more bizarre than just like every love story, every love interest has to be a mixed race couple. There's a, a show that's pretty popular right now with, um, Steve Martin and Martin Short called Only Murders in the Building. And Martin, yeah, Martin's- Yeah, I, I just assumed that was terrible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've watched it out of one eye with, 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 with my wife, but Martin Short plays this just flamboyantly, flamboyantly gay um, 
like Broadway musical director. And like the whole time you're just like, obviously this character is gay. He wears like bright purple um, uh, jackets and he just has produced half a dozen Broadway plays and he lives on the Upper West Side. Very, you know, fey, effeminate guy. And then like on episode four, you meet, you, you find out that he's like divorced and he was married to a, a black woman and his son is this very like macho black veterinarian who helps him take, take care of his dog. And it's like, it's even more uncanny than just like, oh, well, the love interest has to be black or the love interest has to be, you know, the opposite race because it's like this character, the whole premise of this character up until this point is that this is kind of like a single New York City, like theater director. Yeah. But at yeah. some point, somebody in the process of producing this was said, we don't have enough black characters in this. Give him a son and make him heterosexual. So now it's even just like the snake eating its own tail where like a gay character can't even be gay because they haven't, it hasn't given them the proper quota of skin tone to yeah. tell the story. And it's just, yeah. I'm curious. And like, I'm always curious if that's, that kind of stuff is happening if I was reading contemporary literary fiction if i was bothering to, to give it a, a a taste yeah yeah like a, a good example i think of um that dynamic how um you know how today is is different from you know the you know before the the woke period is um i out of you know i don't know what i just wanted to read reviews of boys don't cry because i had a hunch and I uh, and so I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, and almost all the you know the newspapers don't carry the reviews anymore. I'm like, okay, I I know why. And so, interestingly enough, uh, the New Yorker, uh, David Denby, who was the film critic for the New Yorker at the time, uh, I guess like you know 1999 or 2000 something. I, I forget exactly when it came out, but. Um, yeah, so he describes it, you know, as the way someone in that era would describe the movie, as a movie about a, a sad and confused girl who dresses up as a boy and gets killed. And, like, that is, uh, and okay, gets killed isn't fair. She's murdered by, uh, you know, people who, uh, you know, were disturbed by her and, yeah. you know, uh, it's, you know, obviously I, you know, don't condone that at all, but, um, the, you know, the way he talked about it is just so at odds with the, uh, the, the discourse today over, uh, you know, what, uh, what a, a, a trans person. Yeah, they didn't describe it as a hate crime or. Yeah. Well, I mean, crucially, he described it as a girl who dresses up as a boy and has mental problems. Whereas today, like, that would be like, oh, you canceled forever. You, you can't say that. You can't, like, that. that is a boy. That is, and, like, I don't want to get you canceled from YouTube here, so I'm trying to go a little, uh, yeah, yeah, a little yeah, light. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, and it, it just it struck me that the times have changed so much. Yeah. And, and so, like, what we see today, like, it would the David Denby of like 2005, who was just like, a, you know, the is there a, a a place in the New York City literary establishment that's more 
rarefied cathedral air than yeah. the film editor of the New Yorker. Yeah. I, it's hard to find. And so that guy would be canceled today. And, you know, and probably the, the woke stuff that, you know, that we have to watch on Netflix, he'd think like, this is ridiculous. This is, uh, you know, this is terrible. Yes. <laughs> I could go. I've thought about doing like a if I if I had more bandwidth for my show, I would do like the top the the top ten weirdest woke casting every week because I, I I find like at least a dozen a, a week of things where I'm just like, nope, that was not supposed to be a yeah. Puerto Rican girl. That was supposed to be like a seven foot tall white guy. Or like it's, like, it's just it's, yeah. it's so uncanny. Um. Uh, Dan, I've, I've kept you for a, a long time. I did have one last question, and I'm happy to, to chatter uh, if there are any other things you wanted to, to talk about. But one thing I wanted to touch on was um, I'm curious if you have thoughts about um, fiction for younger kids, and I guess especially younger boys. Um, I, you know, I hear all the time now that boys aren't interested i mean kids in general are much less interested in reading but as particularly boys are not at all interested in reading and I'm, I'm of the opinion that's because like the books that they get handed in grade school are just so like milk toast and lame and if you just handed these kids like some robert e howard or some you know some treasure island or like some like lovecraft but some or some something that gives them a sense of adventure and how these you know books can actually be exciting and you can have kind of like strong interesting male characters are there books that you think that, that either matter to you or that you would like recommend to uh to dads to get in their the, the hands of their their sons absolutely and this was uh out of the questions we discussed this was my favorite okay. i had a lot of fun thinking about this and uh, i have to say as i'm looking over my list I guess I was thinking more of the son who is like 16 and not like, you know, the Treasure Island reading age. There's sure. a lot of great stuff for, you know, younger, uh, younger boys. But uh, yeah, this, what I put together is intended for someone who's like, you know, 16, maybe very precocious 14. I mean, certainly these books are still, you know, good is very good. Uh, the best books, you know, for you to read throughout your life. And um, I will say as a preface that I wish that I were exposed, had been exposed to these books earlier, but like, uh, I, I remember I, you know, in, in high school and, you know, not to say she was a bad teacher, she wasn't a bad teacher, but um, she uh, had all of her stuff was on feminist literature. So I, I read uh, Kate Chopin and The Doll's House and, and all of this all of this feminist literature, the awakening. And, you know, this is like, you know, I, I went to an all boys school. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we, we like, you know, we're just like all looking at each other like, oh, what the fuck? Gotta read more of this shit. <laughs> and uh, so here's, here's the real list. Here's what I think. Yeah, I think a, a, uh, a, a truly Catholic education hmm. would be to to read all of these these writers, and so starting with the ancients, uh, Homer, so yeah, yeah, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Virgil, the Aeneid, the plays of Aeschylus, 
Aristophanes. Um, and I mean, I, you know, obviously I could go on and on with the ancients. Uh, oh, uh, the, the history of the Peloponnesian War, for sure, by Thucydides, that's, that's a biggie. So moving on from the ancients, the medieval, I mean, honestly, there's not as much just because Dark Ages yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. produced, but uh, Chaucer, Beowulf, the sagas, moving awesome. on to Heck the yeah. Renaissance. Yeah, the Renaissance, Don Quixote, arguably the first novel, and, uh, and a satire as well. So I, that's really in my wheelhouse. I love Don Quixote. Shakespeare, of course, you know, he's, he's Shakespeare. Dante, Divine Comedy, and um, uh, every man should read The Prince. Not literate, not yes. fiction, but yeah. uh, you know, very instructive. That's a book that very... every father should slip into their son's like <laughs> coat pocket as they leave for college or something. You know, for sure, yeah. for sure. <laughs> and possibly my favorite, the the Augustans, uh, Pope Henry Fielding, Tom Jones. Daniel Defoe, Jonathan Swift, just a lot of like great satirical writing. And, uh, and that was during a period that, you know, had a lot of, um, you know, more, uh, and I, I, maybe the Tradcaths won't be as in on board, but a bawdier period in English history. Oh, I bet they were. Uh, <laughs> uh, moving on to the Romantics, Lord Byron, Coleridge, Wordsworth, you know, those, you know, great, great uh, poets, Keats, of course, the Victorians, Dickens, Melville, um, God, I mean, like George Eliot, um, uh, there's, you know, women can be based too. Oh, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a big, uh, like a, a huge Jane Austen devotee. Yeah, yeah, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, for sure, every Every boy should, uh, uh, my parents actually gave me a uh, framed copy of the poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's, you know, that is a great one. Uh, moving on to the modern period, which, uh, you know, we're all probably a lot more familiar with. Um, obviously, the Fitzgerald, Hemingway, uh, Edith Warden, mm. another, another based lady. T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, Ezra Pound. Um, I'm probably forgetting a ton, but that's that's what came yeah, to yeah. mind. Moving on from that to the Beats, Kerouac, Burroughs, Ginsburg. Um, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of the Beats, but it's like it's an important era in American history. Uh, yeah. And Kerouac's like he's it's a fun read, if not like great literature. So that, and that's just my take, you know, other people will disagree, yeah. of course. And uh, for contemporary, uh, as you mentioned, Roth, but also uh, Updike, Mailer, um, uh, frankly, and this is super contemporary, but Sam Lipsite, love yeah. Sam Lipsite. Uh, Richard Price, he does really hard boiled kind of like New York, Brooklyn crime stories. Um, there's, and this is a guy I had wanted to mention before, but had not uh, had the opportunity. He is super contemporary. His first novel or second novel, but it's the big one that came out in 2016. All That Man Is, his name is David uh, 
it's hard to pronounce, it's a Hungarian last name, but David Soloy, I think, or Soloy, David Soloy. How do you spell it? So that's S-Z-A-L-A-Y. I would have never known that. That's, yeah, yeah, I think it's, I, I've heard it pronounced once before, and I think it was Soloy. And he is a contemporary, and then this is my pitch for him here, he's one of the few actual literary fiction writers lauded by the times i think he maybe even won the the man booker prize or one of those prizes and uh it's really based his writing it's really (laughs) it's about it's uh his novel is called all that man is it's uh, a a novel that has like literally is composed of like 12 short stories that uh, all focus upon a protagonist that is a man at a, a different stage of his life hmm. going from like teenager to uh you know 100 and oh wow it's just yeah it has like really good insights really like you know doesn't pull any punches and uh yeah he's, he's probably my favorite contemporary writer um i'll definitely Gary, check it out that sounds great yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I'll send you a link to his stuff after. Uh, also, I, I should get in there, Gary Steingart. Some of his politics I don't really like, but nor, nor does probably your listeners. But he does write good fiction, and it's it's actually you know surprisingly based as well. So uh, Phil Clay, he wrote Redeployment about the Iraq War, and his you know he's a vet. His stuff is pretty good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, um, yeah. The, uh, the more than made up for your, uh, your feminist, uh, uh, high school. Life <laughs> class, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I had to, you know, reeducate myself. Sure. Yeah. Most, most of us do in one way or another. <laughs> cool. Um, well, Dan, should we, should we wrap it up? I guess, um, you know, again, I'm sorry, Matt couldn't be here, but uh, I'm going to go out and order a copy of Dragon Day because it sounded awesome. Interesting. Um, I'd love to yeah. have you guys on again. Definitely, I'll have you on again once you find a home for your book. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, we, we'd love to be back. Uh, yeah, I, w- I will send it to you. I'd love Great. your thoughts on it. And uh, yeah, looking, looking forward to doing this again. Awesome. It was fun. So everybody, please uh, listen to their back catalog of episodes. I've got all of their links in the the bottom of the show notes here and uh, the new right. So Dan Baltic, thank you again, my friend. Thank you, LT. Appreciate it. Take care.